Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 2nd, 2010. Man, a lot on my mind right now. I got emergence on the brain. I've got seeker-driven guys on the elbow. I, <laughs> I might want to go see a doctor about this. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. As we begin the program here, I, I uh, need to kind of fill you in as to what's happening over the next couple of weeks. Um, I uh, Next Monday is, uh, well, Monday, the Monday coming up is uh, Labor Day here in the United States. Uh, that's what, It's a big socialist holiday. And <laughs> all the socialists like to get together and put together parades in all the major big cities and and the uh, big blue collar towns and remind everybody of Labor Day. And yeah, that's kind of my spin on it. If you, you catch my drift, but anyway, I will be at a studio on uh, Monday Labor Day, so um, uh, the Labor Day program will be a best of program here at Fighting for the Faith. So I wanted to let you all know that, and then uh, and then I'm going to be traveling. And I'm going to try to put together uh, a couple of programs ahead of time, so that uh, so that there's a there will be fighting for the faiths, uh, new ones in the rotation while I'm traveling. I'm going to be uh, traveling to an emergent conference next week, and um, and then a seeker-driven uh, leadership conference at Perry Noble's church uh, the week after that. So I'll be traveling to. The big, the, I mean, one of this probably the biggest emergent conference of the year uh, this year. It's called Big Tent Christianity. It's uh, the Why Can't We All Just Get Along conference and uh, <laughs> the Rodney King conference. And uh, that's uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there next week. And then uh, the following week, I'm traveling to Anderson, South Carolina. And uh, I'll be driving the pirate Christian radio mobile and parking it in an obnoxious space in uh, Anderson and uh, and then attending uh, Perry Noble's leadership conference and you know kind of comparing notes uh, you know that those seem to be two of the big things that we cover here at fighting for the faith and uh, one of my uh, one of my ministry 
philosophies, if you would, is that when it comes to discernment ministry, it's not enough to just listen to uh, what people are saying. I mean, that you can get a you can get a radar fix on them, but it's also important that uh, as a critic, that uh, I you know that I sh- get out from behind the computer, get out from behind the microphone, and travel and uh, have op- you know and where these people are in person, meet them you know and talk with them and uh, get to know them because. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to have a personal rapport uh, with people, even especially the people that I disagree with. And uh, and so sometimes uh, they like talking to me and sometimes they don't. One of the things I've noticed that's um, a uh, just uh, a general rule that I've noticed is that the seeker-driven guys, they under no circumstances, uh, with the exception of Rick Warren— <laughs> With the exception of Rick Warren, under no circumstances are these guys interested in having any kind of substantive conversation with me. No way, Jose. And uh, and so, you know, I, well, at uh, Perry Noble's church, it's going to be Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Mark Driscoll, Francis Chan, and Rick Warren all in one, you know, one packed day. I mean, Seriously, I mean, how do you pass up an opportunity like that? And so, uh, you know, what do I plan on doing? Showing up and sitting and listening. That's 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 the idea. And I've noticed that just my presence at these types of things, you know, creates a little bit of buzz. And uh, as a result of it, people have a tendency to want to approach me and and talk with me. And uh, showing up at Perry Noble's church, I'm sure. Uh, there will be people who want to talk to me because a large portion of the people that uh, that uh, the people's sermons, uh, the pastoral sermons that we've reviewed here, and they haven't received favorable reviews on the sermon review, those guys are going to be there, and uh, and so I'm sure some of them will want to talk with me. They want to, they may want to do more than just t- uh, talk with me, uh, but uh, they are pastors after all, so we'll have to make sure that they keep it to just chat and talk. Uh, but then, uh, and, and then as far as the emergent crowd, oh, dude, I mean, these are the nicest folks. They're completely approachable. They're not threatened by questions and they don't mind engaging in, uh, in theological, doctrinal and philosophical sparring and conversation. I mean, that's all part and parcel of the emergent church. So it's, it, it's a really strange contrast. Uh, I mean, the, the, the blatant heretics, uh, they don't mind having a conversation. The, the guys who... Uh, I, I think are heterodox and teaching stuff that uh, really ultimately undermines the biblical gospel, but they 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 maintain some semblance of being conservative uh, Christians. Uh, uh, those guys don't want to talk to you. Yeah, no, no, no. They're empire building, and and questions threaten empires apparently. So um, it's just a weird thing I've noticed. So and and the, the only exception to that is Rick Warren. Uh, you know, I've uh, you know, Rick Warren. Uh, and I have had a, a face-to-face conversation, and that was uh, by his invitation. And so, yeah, Rick Warren seems to be about the only guy who's not threatened by questions. So hey, we'll see how it all goes. We'll just see how it all goes. So keep me in your prayers as I travel uh, starting next week. And uh, yeah, pray for my sanity because, uh, on, you know, on top of the busy travel schedule, um, you know, I'm also I'm, I'm going to try to keep the program going. Now, I, 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 there's no way that we're going to be able to fill every single day uh, with new programming, but what I'm going to try to do is set aside enough time that I could put some new stuff together, even if it means uh, a Friday light or two. So, uh, you know, that's my intention at this point, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, with the spirit being willing, I hope the body isn't weak. So, 
uh, keep in mind, you know, creeping decrepitude has uh, crept upon me. And so that anyway, I just wanted to give you that update. That's stuff that's coming on. And why do I travel to these conferences? Well, so that you don't have to. However, you know, if, you know, any of you guys who do discernment work, um, you know, seriously, uh, um, for the uh, the Big Tent Christianity Conference, uh, something I you know, I I sent a personal email communiques to uh, Phil Johnson and uh, and uh, Todd Friel of uh, Wretched Radio and Wretched TV, and of course I, I didn't I did I gotta admit I didn't give them enough time you know I wish I had uh, decided to go earlier and so that I could have communicated with them earlier. Uh, but uh, both of them already had previous things going on, and they were not able to come. However, uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, you know, has basically said you know, he may be interested in attending something like this in the future. And I, and I, in my email I, it, that I sent to them both, I, I basically made it clear. I said that since we're we're all doing some kind of discernment work, you know, I, that I really believe that it would be important for them and eye opening for them to actually. Uh, you know, get out from behind the computer or get out from behind the microphone or the camera in Todd Friel's case. Um, yeah, he's, he, I think uh, Todd Friel is the uh, most photogenic of us, so that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I think I have a, a, a perfect body for radio. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm an underweight fat guy. And so uh, Todd Friel, uh, you know, and, and Phil Johnson, you know, I think it's important that they see this stuff because we're all in some way reacting to and offering biblical commentary on these things that are occurring and um and this you know the heresies that are being put out there and and these methodologies that are undermining the gospel and sound biblical doctrine and and our the mission given to us by Christ to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and to make disciples and uh that being the case it's it's one thing to be an armchair or uh you know laptop uh commentator. It's a whole nother thing to get out from behind the laptop and go and build some relationships uh with the hopes of uh of you know engaging in dialogue that may challenge and bring them you know and call them back to a sound understanding of the Christian faith and uh, sound doctrine and you know but you know how, what does Paul say? How how can they believe unless somebody's sent? So we you know, we gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. That's go and make. That's the idea. So anyway, I would uh, I would strongly uh, I, well not strongly. How do I put this? I I I really really would value your uh, prayers as I travel because I, I I gotta admit um, I don't really like traveling a lot. I it's just not my favorite thing to do. And um and and when you travel, obviously you know you, you know there's there's some moderate risk involved, but that that's kind of like the least of my worries. And so, um, you know, pray that uh, Christ would give me the opportunity to clearly proclaim the gospel, to engage in uh, conversations that uh, that would really glorify Christ, and uh, and that uh, that they, these would be fruitful, uh, you know, trips for me to be taking. And you know, even though I have to take them on the cheap, and you know, but the, it's important that uh, that I do these things. So. That's my update for the day. So there, you you have that. That's at the front end of the program. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Kind of an interesting program, too. Um, I've got, let's see here. Um, yeah, wow. Have you all heard of the televangelist by the name of Jesse Duplantis? 
Um, apparently, he's made trips to heaven. I mean, and this I don't think this guy hangs out with the Patricia King crowd. Um, I think Jesse Duplantis is kind of like in the in the greater um, spectrum of the uh, TBN Trinity Broadcasting Network uh, tele evangelist. Uh, you know, group and I, I got audio from a video that's just like unbelievable. And you know, you, you expect things like this from you know the crazies like uh, Patricia King, uh, Todd Bentley, and 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 the XP Media gang. But this guy doesn't, as far as I can tell, doesn't run in that group. Well, he's made a claim that he's. Uh, we we'll be listening to some of the details that he has to share with us about what heaven is like. And uh, and so let's we'll be taking a look at that today. Um, we've got uh, Albert Mueller, evangelicals. Uh, we got a, a headline from the uh, Christian Post: Evangelical scholar troubled by theological ambiguity at Beck rally. I, I thought this was rather insightful um, regarding the Glenn Beck rally, and it's talking about uh, Dr. Albert Mueller's take on it. Worth worth passing along. And, and and then of course we, the, this, one of the stories we didn't get to yesterday was the story about the 25th anniversary of the Jesus seminar. Yeah, the Huffington Post. I mean, we got <laughs> oh yes, the Huffington Post is so excited about all of that. So and then uh, let's see here um, it, for our sermon review today. It, it comes to us via Mars Hill Mars Hill Bible Church. And those of you who uh, you know have been sitting on the fence about uh, Rob Bell being an emergent, uh, do you find it uh, just just out of a simple question uh, before I talk about what we're going to talk about in that uh, sermon review today? Um, do you find it ironic that uh, Rob Bell, who's supposedly not emergent, has uh, had his pulpit, um, if you can call it that, uh, there in the shopping center there in Grand Rapids, that where his church uh, meets. Uh, I'm sorry, his missional community, and uh, and uh, Rob Bell has had Brian McLaren uh, during the sermon time. Uh, Rob Bell has had Phyllis Tickle there during the sermon time. Doug Paget has uh, filled the pulpit there at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church, and then recently, I think last weekend, um, he invited Pete Rollins of the Emergent Church to. Uh, uh, kind of a it really wasn't a standard sermon at all. It was kind of more like a give and take interview of Pete Rollins, and you know Pete Rollins. I yeah, well, we're gonna be listening to that. I, I gotta admit, I, I I really enjoy his company. He's a very smart, uh, very intelligent man, and just very wrong uh, regarding the Christian faith. And uh, so we're gonna be listening to Pete Rollins. I've heard most of this shtick. From him before, uh, he's kind of got a standard stump speech that kind of goes along with the stuff that he's been uh, promoting, and so we're going to be listening to uh, Rob Bell interviewing or having a conversation with Pete Rollins, and uh, he's from Belfast in Ireland, and it, 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 in an emergent luminary, uh, so to speak, and we're going to be doing the comparative work, comparing what he's saying in the name of God to the Word of God. But see, the thing is, is that with Doug Paget, Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, and now Pete Rollins all coming and uh, teaching at Mars Hill Bible Church with the with the idea that they were brought in really to because what they have to offer so apparently can benefit the body of Christ. At least that's what Rob Bell uh, obviously thinks. Do you think for a second that Rob Bell isn't uh, emergent or postmodern in his sensibilities? The guy is a flat out. 
uh, postmodern emergent, uh, you know, well, heretic. That's the best way to put it. Rob Bell isn't bringing us the historic Christian faith. Instead, he constantly, he and his co-pastor, Shane Hips, who believe basically flat out believes in universalism. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what your boat is. Every, all religions are like sailboats. And, uh, you know, the important thing about a religion is that it's, uh, it, it catches the winds of the spirit, uh, Shane Hips said. And we've chronic, we actually reviewed that sermon here at uh, Fighting for the Faith where he said that. And that's his co-pastor. I mean, Shane Hips is, you know, flat out, uh, you know, mystic. You know, the best way, you go, a universalist, pluralistic, postmodern mystic. And, you know, do you, you think he was brought on, you know, board and uh, because he disagrees with Rob Bell? Not on your life. Rob Bell is an emergent and he's a heretic, just flat out. And, uh, you know, I would never, would never invite. Uh, Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, or Pete Rollins to come teach at my church uh, with with the understanding that what they were teaching would benefit the people there and help them grow in their understanding of Christianity uh, and what it, and and their understanding of the one true God, Jesus Christ, and the Christian faith. No way. Not at all. I did. I might invite them to come out and say, "Now I, we've invited them out. Come to come out, and we're going to have some tough." Uh, questions for them because what they teach is contrary to the Christian faith, and I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth. I mean, that's pretty much what I do here at this program. Um, you know, um, when I give folks like that uh, an opportunity to speak, but it's not—it's not because they off—they're offering us something. It's because I want you to do the comparative work to hear from the horse's mouth what they say, so that you can compare it to the Word of God. So. Anyway, that's going to be our program today, so I, I, we might as well just get into it. I mean, you're thinking, well, Chris, I mean, why didn't you get into it sooner? I mean, listen, you've been blathering on now for how many minutes? Yeah, I, I know. I just like to hear myself talk. When One time somebody asked me, uh, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I talk to myself. <laughs> Sometimes that's what it feels like. Okay, moving along here. Okay, um, have you ever taken a trip to heaven? Would you like to know what it's like? Well, apparently, uh, tele-evangelist Jesse Duplantis, uh, well, he, 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 he's been there. He, that's what he claims. He claims he's been to heaven, and he can give us the details of what it's like. And so, um, uh, well, uh, here, listen in. Here's Jesse Duplantis. Um, I have a question about when you went to heaven. It's kind of two parts. I'm okay. very fascinated by that. A, the flowers. You, uh -huh. you tried to describe the flowers. And and thing the thing about uh, the miscarried babies and yes. the aborted babies. I'm a little confused. Explain a little bit. About, okay. Yeah. Okay, now I want to point something out here. Before he starts... Um, <clears throat> Waxing eloquent about the um, uh, about what heaven is like, he he, he, you know, that he was asked a question by someone in his congregation about his trip to heaven. Now, all of this information that you're going to hear, none of it's recorded for us in Scripture. So, in other words, uh, well, you're just going to have to trust uh, Jesse Duplantis and trust that he's speaking the the truth. As I was walking in heaven, 
Is this heavy? I mean, that's quite a sentence. As I was walking in heaven. Now, I've heard the song Walking in Memphis. Walking in... Yeah, anyway. um, but I've n- All right, I'm, I'll put it back in a minute. I want everybody to see this. Oh. He's carrying a flower pot. Okay. As I was walking, like this would be a bush. Watch. Here. When you walk by, now watch as I turn this, the flowers do this. So the flowers turn. Like it's just they can see it. Now, the thing that struck me, I was on a pathway, and this angel just kept walking right through the grass, and all these beautiful flowers. I did not want to step on them flowers. See, you can't kill nothing. There's no death in heaven. There's no brown leaf in heaven. You see what I'm saying? Because, you know, when we call autumn colors are beautiful, you know what that is? That's the, the, that tree knows these are deprived of oxygen. They're dying. Well, when I walk, I, I stopped. He said, don't worry about it. Walk through. When I walked, it looked like it went through my legs. And, and the flowers just turned around. I mean, I saw them flowers like, just do this. Uh, are, you, are any of you all, bu- I mean, he's really sounds sincere. Do you think that for a second, Jesse Duplantis has, well, you know, taken some vacation time in heaven? Here's a better question. Why should I believe this is true? Yeah, why should I mean, I mean, I'm sure this is within the realm of, quote, possibility. I mean, the Apostle Paul. Uh, depending on how you interpret Second Corinthians, I mean, it seems to allude to the fact that he had actually made a trip to heaven himself. But then again, he also, well, he was an eyewitness of the resurrection because the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Yeah, so his story isn't typical. Why should I believe Jesse Duplantis? And I thought, man, everything in heaven is living. And everything has the smell of God. I, I, yeah, see, again, this is the thing that bugs me about this kind of stuff. Is Jesse Duplantis really pointing me towards Christ and him crucified for our sins? Or by making these outrageous claims, is, is, does this instead really make me think, wow, Jesse Duplantis, well, he's really a man of God. I mean, look at the. I mean, he's so privileged because he's so godly that well, God allows him to go to heaven and spend some time there. And so now the question immediately comes up: Well, what do I need to do in order for God to let me go to heaven? I mean, how come he gets to go and I don't get to go? I mean, you see, you understand what I'm saying here? The focus. I mean, all of a sudden, there's. I don't see Christ and Him crucified. I don't see the. I don't see God being glorified. Uh, the person I see being glorified is um, Jesse Duplantis. And of course, then again, he also has this large um, television broadcasting bill that he has to pay month after month after month after month after month, and. You know, um, standard Orthodox Christianity, that doesn't quite sell that well. So um, stories about trips to heaven, those have a way of kind of increasing ratings and, you know, and increasing giver, yeah, you know, money coming in. That's the thing. I said, what's that wonderful smell? He said, that's the scent of God. I have, I, you know, I, I said, what's it smell like? God. <laughs> explain it because it's frustrating to try to explain it. Let me put this over there so Gloria don't get all over me about this. <laughs> Cloud of hair, praise God. 
I've learned that if you move one of these things, do it right. Yeah, yeah do it. is that right? Ladies, good enough. Okay, all right. See, and I said, yeah. Notice, I mean, we're not in a biblical text. We're not learning sound biblical doctrine. Our really Christian discipleship is not really occurring here. People say, well, explain, describe it. I can't describe it because I haven't smelled it. You got, it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you smell a rose, if you don't know what a rose smells like, try to describe the scent of a rose. But once someone's told you and, and then you encounter it again, it'll work for you. Now, concerning the babies, that is where I've been criticized more than anything in that whole book. Because then preachers want them babies in hell. It's amazing how many people preach babies in the hell. God does not lose babies. If you've had a miscarriage or if you've had an abortion, you've asked the Lord to forgive you, whatever, whatever. Let me tell you, that baby is waiting for you in heaven. Now, here's the difference. That baby will... Okay, now, um, where is any of this taught in the scripture? Babies die. That shows that they are sinners by nature they're receiving the wages of sin that's that's biblical theology now his claim is because he's now made a trip to heaven he can speak with authority and say god doesn't lose any babies oh okay so we were space to base christian doctrine now not on god's word and sound biblical reasoning but instead, he's had an experience now that, well, seems to take into uh, basically, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but if you were to take this logically, then if you really want your children to go to heaven, you need to make sure that you abort them. That's the sure guarantee that your children will make it to heaven. Got a problem here. Grow and be taught the oracle of God. If you lived a long age life, that baby will begin to grow. But let's just say Jesus, let's say you had a miscarriage last year, all right, and Jesus comes uh, today. You are going to raise your own baby. You understand what I'm saying? God. Wow. And he's not basing this on what the Bible says. He's basing this apparently on his trip to heaven. God does not lose babies. And let me tell you, one of the greatest signs that Jesus is coming, and I'm going to say something that's going to shock you, is abortion. Because every time the government got involved with killing babies, God sent a deliverer. You think about that for a minute. Is that true in human history? I mean, every time the government has gotten involved in killing babies, God has sent a deliverer? Is that the reason why God sent deliverers is because they were killing babies? I mean, even biblically, does this make any sense? Listen again. Listen. You think about that. Every time, my God, Pharaoh start killing babies and God sent Moses. So is the reason why God sent Moses because they were killing babies? Because Idris was killing babies. Uh, no. Actually, God promised to deliver before Israel went into Egypt. So it wasn't connected to the killing babies part. That just was part of the slavery. And one of the sins, the egregious sins committed by Egypt against uh, God's chosen people. Herod stopped killing babies and God sent Jesus. The God- uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there, Jesse. Yeah. See, this is, see, here's the deal. 
based on what he's preaching right now, I have to conclude that he's lying about his trip to heaven. Let me uh, let me back this up just a smidge, and you uh, see if you catch this. Hang on. God start killing babies, and God sent Moses. Herod start killing babies, and God sent Jesus. Mm, wrong. That's absolutely a lie and a complete misunderstanding of Scripture. Uh, the the killing of the innocents that occurs in the Gospels, okay, after Jesus's birth. Okay, God didn't send Jesus because Herod was killing babies. No, Herod killed babies in Bethlehem because Jesus was born and Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. Remember the Magi showing up that they had come to worship the king of the Jews who had been born in Bethlehem? Herod had the innocents killed in Bethlehem, the babies, uh, how did he say it? babies, uh, he had them killed because Jesus was already there. Yeah, Jesse here, he'd be twisting scripture. What does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. No, absolutely. I can, I can say at this point with 100% certainty, he's lying about his trip to heaven. The government's killing babies again, and Jesus is coming back. It is a sign of his coming. So, yay, praise the Lord. There's abortion. That means Jesus is coming back. Wow. Need I play more? No, he he hasn't been to heaven. Nope, not at all. No way. All right, we're up on our first break. If uh, you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. <laughs> You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. 
Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gabble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, we don't need uh, televangelists traveling to heaven. Yeah, Jesus sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. 
We can just go straight to him. We don't need any televangelists acting as intermediaries. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. It's a partnership here. I do the work. I do the study. I do the production. I put it all together and make it available to you. You grow. You learn. You laugh. You cry. And uh, you you benefit from the fruits of my labor. And uh, you share in that and show that you were really appreciating the value that I bring here at Fighting for the Faith by supporting us financially. And the way you do that, visit our website, click on one of the buttons. The donate button is allows you to basically do a one-time uh, contribution of your choice amount, or uh, you can click on the uh, join our crew button, which signs you up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to uh, send in your contribution, you can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. From the Huffington Post, headline reads, Jesus Seminar celebrates 25 years of searching for the historical Jesus. You know, with a headline that's reads like that makes you wonder what's taken you guys so long apparently i think 25 years later they're farther away from discovering quote the historical jesus than they ever were before and the reason why is because well the new testament biographies that we have in matthew mark luke and john uh represent eyewitness testimony mark was written by an eyewitness john written by an eyewitness and Mark, uh, 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 sorry, Matthew uh, was written by an eyewitness. Mark is uh, the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter. And Luke, well, that that biography was put together by interviewing the eyewitnesses. And so the problem is, is that the Jesus Seminar works with the presupposition that <laughs> that can't possibly be true. No, 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 no. That that Jesus doesn't fit our our uh, our. Uh, liberal assumptions about how the world should operate. We don't like the things that he does there and all oh, that blood sacrifice and ooh, yuck. That's no, 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 no. The, uh, the Jesus, the Jesus they're looking for is the Jesus who is, well, like them. They think the historical Jesus would be basically a, a Protestant liberal. And so what they do is they, <clears throat> any passage of scripture that, doesn't sound like it would be coming from a Protestant liberal. Uh, well, that can't possibly be from the historical Jesus. <clears throat> yeah, that's how that little seminar works, by the way. Uh, we read, uh, this is written by G. Jeffrey MacDonald. Uh, it's uh, posted at the Huffington Post website, originally dispatched by the Religion News Service, RNS. Uh, Since 1985, scholars affiliated with the Jesus Seminar have been casting doubt on the authenticity of sayings attributed to Jesus and questioning whether he saw himself as an end-times prophet. Uh, Jesus saw himself as God in human flesh, you know, the God of the Jews in human flesh. 
As the seminar marks its 25th anniversary, October 13th through 16th in Santa Rosa, California, it's generating far less attention and controversy than in years past when the media spotlight gave, me- uh, gave members a platform to reach millions. Now observers are debating a new question. What difference has the Jesus Seminar made? Once again, well, the jury is divided. Among the seminar's 100 fellows is a strong sense that the group has effectively made the general public more aware of questions surrounding the so-called historical Jesus. For example, by using color-coded beads to vote on whether Jesus likely said this or that, the group captured widespread attention, said John Dominic Crossan, chair of the 25th anniversary event. Quote, when some of our critics said, these guys are seeking publicity, we said, duh, that's the whole purpose, Crossan said. Quote, we wanted people to know what we were doing. That was the whole purpose of the voting with the colored beads and all the rest of the paraphernalia. It was designed for cameras. Critics of the Jesus Seminar can see that the group definitely drew the spotlight and got a cross-section of people talking about Jesus, but... They also fault the scholars for allegedly misrepresenting their views as mainstream and for shaking the faith of Christian communities. That's right. This is basically a demonic, satanic attempt to cast doubt on Jesus. We don't want you to believe in, in the Jesus that the eyewitness apostles wrote about. No, 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 no. We, we, so when Jesus makes these thorny, these statements that if you don't believe that I am, that, that that I am God, that you will die in your sins. No, 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 no. That doesn't sound like something a Protestant liberal would say. <laughs> so we voted on it. We got rid of it. Yeah. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except for through me. <laughs> you can't. No, 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 no. That doesn't sound like anything a Protestant liberal would say. So let's vote on it. Okay. Color beads into the, oh, good, good. We can get rid of that one too. <clears throat> yeah, let's continue. Quote, they created this, this impression that they were representing a genuine consensus of opinion that Jesus only said 18% of what's attributed to him in the Gospels and so on, said Duke Divinity School Dean and New Testament scholar Richard Hayes. Quote, in point of fact, that was never so. They didn't represent the sort of consensus that they claimed to represent. It was a self-selected group of scholars who held a particular view. Uh, the Jesus Seminar held its first meeting in Berkeley, California. Boy, that's not ironic, is it? As uh, 35 individuals, mostly scholars, responded to an invitation from the late Robert Funk, who died in 2005. Having rejected the fundamentalism of his youth, Funk was eager to assemble fellow scholars to dispel what he considered to be mistaken church teachings about Jesus. According to Lane Magahi. Uh, a member of the seminar since its beginning. What emerged from the group's semi-annual meetings was a sense of a Jesus as human, not divine, rising to prominence because of his social justice teachings, not because of his messianic status. Yeah, see, Jesus, yeah. The uh, the Jesus of the Jesus seminar, um, no need for him to walk on water, you know, no, <laughs> you claim to be God. No, 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 no. See, Jesus was uh, Gandhi with a beard. Yeah, see that. See that's their Jesus. You, you, what you do is you you take Gandhi and you 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 you, and you take a a painting of Jesus and then you go into Photoshop, and what you do is you create a skinny little man 
with glasses and a beard, and that's their Jesus, you know, and and see, their Jesus isn't about, well, dying on the cross for our sins. No, 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 pro- no Protestant liberal would believe that. Their, their Jesus is all about social justice, you know, feeding the poor and and sticking it to the Caesar man. Yeah. Why was Jesus on the cross? Well, he was he was showing his disciples just how evil and wicked uh, the imperial framing stories were. And so he wasn't dying on the cross for the sins. His blood couldn't do nothing. No, 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 no. Forget about the divine Jesus. No, no. Jesus was, he, he was just an enlightened um, social justice teacher, you know, in the, in the vein of uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, you know, those kind of guys. But, uh, uh, the, the divine, only begotten Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, who died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification? No. In fact, John, John Dominic Crossan, what does he think happened to Jesus' body? See, Jesus, after he was crucified, according to John Dominic Crossan, well, Jesus' body was probably thrown into the city dump and was eaten by dogs. Raised from the dead? No. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. So it makes you wonder, are these guys really interested in the, quote, historical Jesus? No. They're interested in the Jesus that looks like them and thinks like them and doesn't have any of the ugly, the uncivilized teachings you know, of the first century. Miracles, nah. Resurrection, pa. Blood sacrifice and atonement? No way. Social justice, feeding the poor? Yes, we would go with that one. So uh, do the math. I mean, with only 18% left. <laughs> so in other words, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, you know, Matthew, um, John, Peter, and uh, the guy who interviewed the eyewitnesses, Luke, they were all wrong. See here, 20, uh, 20 centuries later, we finally have discovered the real historical Jesus. And for 2,000 years, the church has been absolutely wrong. I mean, if you believe this, and you basically have to believe that the church has been mistaken about Jesus from the beginning. Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, well, he probably didn't do that too because that would look divine. Ever since um, the uh, the disciples hallucinated that they thought they saw Jesus ascending into heaven. <clears throat> yeah, that, that sounds more liberal. Um uh, ever since the kickoff of the church, um, uh, the, the, well, the church completely got it wrong about Jesus. I mean, um, the guys who hung out with him for three years, they completely biffed it. I mean, they missed the boat altogether. Here they were teaching about, you know, um, a divine incarnate deity um, claiming to be God, walking on water, dying on the cross for our sins, and rising from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, for our justification, they were all wrong. But thankfully, God in his wisdom has finally sent us the sainted Robert Funk and John Dominic Crossan and the 100 fellows of the Jesus Seminar to finally once and for all give us the correct understanding of Jesus. And what did we find out? Well, Jesus was a Protestant social justice liberal. And he probably practiced the Lectio Divina and uh, also hung out with the Buddha. And the two of them are at the at the moment experiencing Brahman or whatever. <sighs> yeah. If you want to read the rest of it, it's at the Huffington Post. 
Okay, evangelical uh, scholar troubled by theological ambiguity at Beck Rally. This is by Nathan Black of the Christian Post. Uh, by the way, I have received a little bit of criticism from folks uh, regarding my take on the uh, the Glenn Beck Rally. And the criticism generally runs along these lines. Um, even though Glenn Beck is a Mormon, and of course Mormons are not Christians, that I should have been more generous in my handling of Glenn Beck because he is a fine American and a defender of the Constitution. I will grant that Glenn Beck is a fine and upstanding specimen of American citizenry. And uh, I love his passion for defending the Constitution and the principles uh, that, uh, that support it within our greater society. Uh, where I draw the line, though, is uh, I will not uh, sit by quietly when a Mormon claims to have the same faith that I do. Ain't no way in Hades I'm sitting by and just sitting on my hands and going, well, he's good American. Yeah, let me let me read what Al Mohler has to had to say about this. This was covered by Nathan Black. In the days following Glenn Beck's highly publicized rally in Washington, D.C., conservative Christians have come out expressing their concern not over the increasingly popular broadcaster, but over the apparent confusion among Christ followers. Uh, Nathan, we're Christians. Uh, Christ followers has uh, that connotation to it that it's a confusion of law and gospel, but you don't obviously listen to my program. Uh, quote, there is something very strange going on here. I don't understand the disconnect on the part of Christians, said Dr. R. Albert Muller, Jr., president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Americans from across the country converged on the National Mall on Saturday for the Restoring Honor rally led by Fox News commentator Glenn Beck. Reports indicated that the, felt that the event drew anywhere from 87,000 to 500,000 people back. A Mormon was joined by a diverse group of religious leaders, including evangelical Christians, as he called on America to turn back to God. Mueller one of the nation's preeminent evangelical theologians found that Beck's ra- found that Beck's rally cries were resonating with many Christians. "Quote: What concerned me about the event on the Mall was not so much Glenn Beck and the politicians in the program; it was the picture of those religious leaders standing together." He said Tuesday on the Janet Mefford show during Saturday's three-hour event. Over two hundred religious leaders stood behind Beck, linking arms at certain points with Dr. Richard Land, a well-known Southern Baptist, and Bishop Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Maryland were among the conservative Christians standing there. While Land does not agree with Beck's theology, he told National Public Radio that the event was about a deep concern of of Americans that the country has taken a fundamentally wrong turn and is heading in the wrong direction. Jim Garlow, pastor of Sky Line Wesleyan Church in San Diego, California, who was also at the event, said the rally was about extolling virtue and honoring God, and the event was evangelical in tone, he said in a commentary on CNN. Quote, despite the pre-rally discussions of Beck's Mormonism, the rally's litany of evangelical speakers gave gave it the Jesus-centeredness of a Billy Graham crusade. All theological references were clearly evangelical and biblically based, uh, Garlow wrote, after observing the uh, rally, Mueller came away with a different take and a big concern. Quote, the bottom line is we've been used and we've allowed ourselves to be used at times by politicians and others who co-opted God talk, he said Tuesday 
on the Janet Mefford Show. We conservative Christians in America have just assumed that because they were using our language, they were talking about the same gospel or talking about the same understanding of God or talking about the same theological structure. That's just not true, he stressed. Mueller doesn't uh, disagree on uniting with others on common concerns and moral convictions, but he underscored that the need to, dis- to quote, distinguish that from, uh, from standing together in the faith. Exactly. And this is, uh, I had a private conversation uh, with a family member about this uh, very thing. See, uh, if you go back and you listen to my program, you'll realize I'm not really mad at Beck. What I'm mad at is, is, is the Christian church. Okay, I'm mad at the Christian church, and the reason why, and, I, and that, this is where I think the fault lies, is that the Christian church has stopped preaching the gospel and sound biblical doctrine and, and, and really raising up biblically astute, literate uh, Christians who understand law and gospel, sin and grace, and understand sound biblical doctrine, and understand that, uh, that despite the fact that the Mormons use the same words as us, Jesus, God, Father, atonement, salvation, that all of those words have different definitions attached to them. And that Mormons are not our Christian brothers. Instead, they are followers of a false religious cult that's designed to look like Christianity but isn't. It's a counterfeit. And the God they believe in is not the same God that we believe in. And so when Glenn Beck talks about our faith, that's a problem. I can't see... As much as I appreciate the American values that Glenn Beck is defending and upholding, I can't unite with Glenn Beck in any way that would make it look like I hold the same faith that he does. And so the event itself was religiously syncretistic, and that's a problem. We Christians have to draw a line. We can't be syncretistic and put basically attend events and make it look like that there that these differences don't matter they do matter they matter uh in the kingdom of god which is the more important kingdom here not the kingdom of the united states anyway let me continue here all right quote one of the healthiest things that that can happen among conservative christians is the ability to recognize to discern the difference between civil religion and authentic christianity muller explained the conservative theologian said he and many other believers agree with beck on many of his political views he also expressed appreciation for how beck identifies many really horrible and very dangerous liberal ideas but just to debunk liberal ideas does not give you the authority to be taken at your word to be speaking truth when you talk about the gospel, he cautioned. Exactly. One of the uh, one of the growing themes that I that I've been working on here at Fighting for the Faith, and you know, I'll, I'll you know tip you, you know, every every edition of Fighting for the Faith, there's a there's a theme, but I don't I don't express it. You know, you'd have to go back and kind of see if you can backwards engineer it. But one of the themes I work from is this idea that just because somebody correctly diagnoses this illness does not mean does not mean that the prescription that they're offering is a good one. Glenn Beck has correctly identified many of the very dangerous liberal ideas that uh, that have in, not only invaded politics but also religion. But just correctly identifying those those very dangerous liberal ideas does not mean that the solution that he's offering, Mormonism or syncretistic evangelicalism that recognizes 
Mormonism as a Christian denomination or a Christian religion, that, 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 that solution is every bit as dangerous as the liberal ideas that he's uh, debunking and exposing light on. And see, that's the problem. And Christians, we, we have got to have the discernment to say, I appreciate your critique, but your solution is not true either. It's every bit as dangerous as the things you are critiquing. And I think that's the issue with Glenn Beck, and I think Mueller did a good job of putting his finger on it. He says, continuing, uh, Mueller outlined the fact that Mormons hold to a very different understanding of God than that of the of Christian theism. Quote, we're talking about very different deities here, he said, and I think many Christians just have no idea as they as they were watching that event. How many American Christians who are watching that rally and resonating with a call for spiritual revival know that the man who is up there speaking using words about gospel and God and all the rest believes that there was a male and female deity, that the Godhead is a reproductive pair, and that eventually we will be divine ourselves if indeed we follow the path of righteousness, Muller added. Yeah, great question. Since uh, January, Beck has been working on the themes of faith, hope, and charity. He said his aim is to restore history, honor, and our faith in the country. The popular commentator has discussed the gospel of Jesus Christ repeatedly on his television program, even using evangelical language such as atonement through the shed blood of Christ. But, Mueller commented, that's bizarre language for a Mormon to be using in this light, and to have evangelical Christians affirm that he's talking about the same gospel we are. It's the same language, but it's not the same gospel. What both Moeller and Mefford believe is happening is spiritual rallying on vague terms. Quote, when we see some of the talk that has come out of the rally and some of the people associated with the rally all about God, 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 I just have really strongly felt that it needs to be very precise definition when we bring God into discussion on anything, radio host Mefford stated. Muller described the scenario as having all the cards on the table but turned over so that the faces are not seen. You're having the language, but you're not having the definitions here, he noted. Quote, it's not, it really is not so much a concern politically, it's a concern theologically. If we are Christians, we have to understand that the name of God is not just some kind of generic noun that we can throw around. While Muller recognized that some Christians would be irritated listening to his take on Beck, and that the rally and the, theolo- uh, the theologians' hopes that they'll be irritated enough to go and look at the Scripture. Amid the theological ambiguity and confusion, Muller reminded Christians that a revival or spiritual renewal cannot happen without a heart that has known salvation through Jesus Christ. You can't have spiritual renewal where, biblically speaking, there's spiritual deadness, he said. The reality is we can't biblically believe that they really know the one true and living God unless they know him through the actual Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Great take. Thank you, Dr. Moeller. Again, you know, man, that guy's brilliant. Why isn't he a Lutheran? <laughs> All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time. Uh, Pete Rollins and um, Rob Bell. You don't want to miss it.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Yeah, this is, uh, well, hang on, i got to do my traditional thing. I'm, I'm jumping the gun, I'm obviously, what's the phrase, chomping at the bit here, ready to rock and roll, waiting for the gate to fly open so I can run down the track with this one. I need to stop drinking coffee in the afternoons, that was just way too much energy.
the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, this, well, I guess technically this falls during the sermon time over at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, the flagship church for Rob Bell. If you have any doubts about Rob Bell being an emergent postmodern, uh, you, this should dispel all of that. Now, the person going to be doing most of the talking ain't Rob Bell. That was just bad grammar. Yeah, I got to work on that. I, if what's funny, I listen back to the program sometimes, and I sit there and go, you know, my pronouns don't always agree with my verbs. I need to work on that singular plural thing going. I don't always have agreement there when I'm speaking. I've noticed it. If you know. Anyway, I'm off topic. Uh, the guy doing the most of the talking is Pete Rollins. And, um, folks, you're going to hear him making all kinds of claims. He's going to be making all kinds of assertions. Assertions about doubt. Assertions about faith. Assertions about what the Christian faith should be. Assertions about uh, theology and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, um, let me kill the music here. Now, let me give you the thing that you should use to help you here. Um, here we go. If you have your Bibles, flip on over. You see, I have to do the pre-biblical teaching because this ain't a sermon or a teaching based on the Scripture. It's based upon the assertions of Pete Rollins. Now, Rob Bell finds them brilliant. I find them to be uh, disturbingly unfounded in Scripture, and I can find passages in the Bible that contradict this stuff. Just a thorny little thing. Call me an old-school Christian. I wouldn't mind that. Uh, that's one of the least of uh, the aspersions cast and said about me. Uh, but uh, I think that if you say something that contradicts the Scripture, then what you say really, your your assertion isn't true. Yeah, I still work in those categories. Now, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Colossians. I want to read this in context. Colossians chapter 1. However, the verse I really want to key in on is not found in 1. It's found in 2, but I want to read it in context. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24, I read, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is to the Colossian church. And by the way, this uh, epistle was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches at Colossae in order to um, contradict, to in order to refute, to rebuke a false doctrine and a heresy that was being taught there in Colossae. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Uh, what was the uh, mission of Paul? To make the word of God fully known. A question. Um, do you think that was just for the apostles, or should the job of a pastor to be make the word of God fully known? Yeah, pastors, they have this job. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, it's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, 
that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible-sounding arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it that no one takes you captive or takes you a slave by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the uh, the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So I read that all in context. Notice Paul's emphasis, Christ, 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 what he's done, his forgiveness, shedding of blood for the, trust, for the sins of, our, of the world, so, you know, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Christ has canceled the written code, nailing it to the cross. It's all about Christ. And he warns us two times in this passage that I've just read, one in uh, Colossians 2, 4, saying, uh, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, plausible-sounding arguments. And verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. With that as your biblical foundation, as we launch into this uh, presentation by Pete Rollins, Ask yourself this question. Am I hearing a man who's pointing me to Christ, to Jesus, who died for my sins, in whom I have been baptized into, uh, who circumcised my heart, uh, whom I've been made alive together with, and that my sins had been forgiven by canceling the record of debt that stood against me, and nailing it to the cross, or am I hearing something, well, to put it bluntly, completely different? 
Is Pete Rollins giving us biblical teaching, or is he giving us philosophy? That's what it boils down to. Is Pete Rollins giving us biblical teaching, or is he basically just making unfounded assertions based upon some philosophical understanding that he has? With that in mind, we now listen to this sermon, Pete Rollins and the Power of Story. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you. I hear that we have some visitors. Do we have some visitors um, from away? Now, where are you all visiting from? China and Japan and Korea and anywhere else. And Virginia. <laughs> well, I, those, those of you visiting us from China, you're a study group, a student group, uh, um, a gang of some sort. Um, those of you from China, Korea, Japan, and if you're from Virginia, you want to stand as well. Once you stand, we want to welcome you. Um, yeah. It's great. Um, it's... It's great to have you with us, and I know that the size coming from China of a place like West Michigan can be overwhelming. Um, but we want you to. And then, do we have anybody? Uh, do we have anybody visiting? Do anybody else visiting from anywhere down south or anybody? Yes. Ann Arbor. Okay. And do I have anybody else visiting from anywhere? I have some family visiting. Texas. I have my cousins here from Texas, so I just kept looking that way, waiting for them to yell Texas. This means China and Texas, we have people visiting from the two biggest countries in the world. So that's kind of an exciting thing for us. Yes. Pardon? Germany. Ah, guten Morgen. Or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. Tennessee. Howdy. Well, uh, we have another uh, distinguished guest with us um, this morning. I've been looking forward to this morning for so long. Several years ago, one of our elders gave me a book by an Irish writer named Peter Rollins. It was his first book. It was called How Not to Speak of God. I mean... Seeing what you're looking at? Yes. Uh, <laughs> And um, one of our elders said that she had read this over and over again and found it one of the most significant theological works um, that had just spoken to her all sorts of ways. And so I, I read the book and was like, I, I must meet this elusive, mysterious Peter Rollins. It's not that big in real life, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, when you buy it, it's smaller. not that big. Yeah, you can get yeah. a smaller version available. Yeah. And so I was... Uh, I found the e I tracked down an email of this Peter Rollins chap and asked if the next time I was in Belfast we could have a meal. And so uh, the summer of 2008, I um, went to Northern Ireland and um, Peter picked me up at the train station and I think we talked for two days straight. Um, and since then, um, I have come to value his friendship and perspectives and he's um, written a number of other books, which I think you'll find equally compelling and stimulating. And then last year we did a pastor's conference and Peter came and I had a chance to interview him. And whatever happened there was such joy. And I thought, I want all of my brothers and sisters to meet my friend Peter 
Now, Peter, um, besides being a writer, uh, poet, philosopher, Peter has, and I had to write this down, Peter has an undergraduate degree from the Queen's University in Belfast in scholastic philosophy. He has a master's in political theory and social criticism, and he has a Ph.D. in post-structural theory. So I know a lot of you are like, oh, a brother. <laughs> but he has not been to Mars Hill. So please give your standard Belfast welcome to Peter Rollins. Wow. Yeah! Wow. Yeah! Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Stop it, stop it, stop it. It's so good. They never uh, clap at the end. You know, pardon? They never clap at the end when I'm speaking, <laughs> except for a slow clap of get off the stage, get off the stage. Right. Is, the only reason why I'm here is because he told me this was in a shopping mall. I've been looking around. There's not one shop anywhere. <laughs> I could be lying in bed at the moment. There's not even a Rob Bell gift shop. You know, <laughs> what's going on? I spoke with Rob Bell and all, my friends spoke with Rob Bell and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I, yeah, I, want, I want some from my friends. We didn't discuss this ahead of time. No, no, sorry. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's, sorry, go ahead. It's great um, to have you with us. What would you like to talk about? Just, do you ever think that those guys behind you are, are, are creeping up on you? Whenever, yeah. Okay, so you know what's going on here. Uh, Rob Bell, when he teaches, he teaches in the round. Yeah, uh, one of the things about um, emergent communal space is they don't like the hierarchical idea of you know somebody in the front preaching down to people. So it's more of an egalitarian idea here, and so he teaches you know in the center, in the round. Yeah, I'm a paranoid person, so whenever you turn and talk to these guys. What are these ones doing? Right. You know? They're about to throw That's something. why we've set it up. I'm going to watch them. Okay. For and I'll you. watch these guys. And you watch them. Okay. And your drummer must be very unpopular. The if drummer's very in, unpopular. Yeah, yes. Yes. him in this box. Sorry. <laughs> uh, 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 Do you have anything else you want to say about the building? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's me. I think I've, I've said my piece. Uh, is, is that an Uber? That's great. Um, now, when I first began encountering your uh, your writings and, and your thinking, it uh, so struck me your sense of desire and wonder and love of God. But in a, a slightly different way. And I've wondered, coming from Belfast... Uh, people talk about West Michigan as, you know, it's really religious. But, but you come from an area, and having driven through those streets of Belfast with you, where people have killed over their religious beliefs. Yeah. So, so when someone in West Michigan says, well, you know, I come from a really religious area, you wouldn't believe what people would do in the name of religion. Yeah. Um, how do you hear that coming from Belfast, where people have killed for their beliefs? Yeah, I mean, Belfast is... Um uh, people hold on to their religious identity, their political identity, their social identity very, very strongly. Uh, but that's completely natural. It's natural for everybody to do that. We uh, To believe is human. To believe is the easiest thing in the world to do. Getting people to believe is like shooting ducks in a barrel. Right? That's why you can fill stadiums 
with, with giving people beliefs, because we want to believe, because belief gives us a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and so we hold on to our beliefs very tightly. And whenever people tell us what we already believe, we feel good about ourselves. That's why most of us don't read books that we would disagree with. Uh, that's why we, most of us read papers that, uh, which already take the slant that we already agree with. Now, the, the, you know, I got to speak here. I've heard him uh, deliver the same uh, speech before, in, you know, in person, and um, you know. Maybe it's just me, but um, I, I well, if you listen to this program, number one, I don't uh, limit myself to people I agree with. In fact, if anything, I spend a lot of time listening to and reading people whom I strongly disagree with. Not because I identify that, that my identity is caught up with a, with a particular set of beliefs, but because um, I believe there's a such thing as truth. Okay, and I, I also believe there's a such thing as error, and I think that that the Bible is is true, and those who contradict it are in error, and uh, and that though and that truth and error has consequences, and so this is you know for me I say I can't speak for you, but for me this doesn't even remotely come close to resonating because I spend so much time listening to and reading people who have completely opposite ideas uh, to uh, what's taught clearly in the Scripture. Yeah, so, I, I don't know. Because we want to believe, we want to support ourselves with our religious, our political, and our social identities. Now, the crux for me is that actually in Christianity, um, to doubt is divine. To be able to give up your identities, your social, political, and religious identities, um, is, is an act that uh, we see on the cross itself. G.K. Chesterton said... Yeah, you heard him right. He said, to doubt is divine. To doubt is divine. Now, let me stop right there. Um, here's the problem. He's speaking philosophically, not theologically. And now he's going to quote G.K. Chesterton to lend him you know, some air of uh, Chesterton's orthodoxy. Um, doubt is a pass-through. Faith is a pass-through. And what I mean by that is this. Um, I, I could agree that doubting certain things is a godly thing to do. However, doubting the right things is a satanic thing to do, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. Somebody asked me the other day, um, I, I was uh, out exercising, and one of the things I do when I exercise is I like to play disc golf. I, I enjoy the walk. Um, I enjoy the challenge of the scoring of, of disc golf, and it doesn't. it's not the same commitment that uh, traditional golf is either financially or time-wise, so I can get it done pretty quickly. But uh, I, I was out. I was out playing disc golf, and there's a gentleman that plays about the same time I do on a regular basis. And he asked me a question, you know, about faith. You know, uh, you know, what do you think about faith? And I said, faith in what? Faith is like eyesight. Okay, uh, faith always has an object, and doubt is is similar in that sense that doubt always has an object. So to say that you have faith basically tells me nothing. To say that you have doubt basically tells me 
nothing. Okay. So the, the uh, immediately when somebody says they have faith, my immediate next question is faith in what? Faith in whom? If they say I'm having doubts, I'd say what are you doubting? Whom are you doubting? Some things are good to doubt. Some things are not good to doubt. For instance, okay, it is a good thing to doubt your own righteousness. Okay? It is a good thing to be brought to a point by the preaching of the Word of God to completely doubt your own ability to please God, because Scripture says you can't please God through your own righteousness and through law-keeping. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it is a godly endeavor to preach God's Word in such a way that the person who is the recipient of that teaching learns to doubt themselves, learns to doubt their own ability to please God through their good works, and instead trust in the finished work of Christ. So you know, the idea is, is that when we, I constantly you know, beat this drum about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a change of mind, and in order for that change of mind to take place, there has to be an abandoning of a particular way of thinking, an abandoning of that teach of that of certain ideas, and that abandoning requires you to doubt those ideas to be valid and true. And instead, for you to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But I don't think that's what Pete Rollins is doing here, okay? Because he's just saying that doubt is divine. No, doubting the right things is truly godly, okay? But then you go back to the garden. Go back to the garden. Go back to the garden. When Satan tempts Eve, did God really say... The first move in the opening gambit by our archenemy, the devil, was to get Eve to doubt what God said. So it's not good to doubt God's word. It's not good to cast doubt on God's word. It's not good to cast doubt on the authority of God's word. It's not good to cast doubt on the clear teachings of Scripture. That's not divine, that's devilish. It is divine to cast doubt on our own righteousness. It's good to cast doubt on our ability to please God through our law-keeping and our good works. It is good to cast doubt on the idea that we are basically good people. See, I operate on a daily basis here in doubt and faith. I'm trying to deconstruct your faith in yourself and your good works and cause you to doubt that to the point of despair and then give you Christ and him crucified for your sins, his perfect life, his death, his propitiatory and substitutionary death on the cross for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation and justification to get you to stop trusting in yourself and your abilities spiritually and put and instead despair of that and instead trust only in Christ. And that's what faith is. Faith is an unyielding kind of trust. And so faith has an object, doubt has an object. But that's not what Pete Rollins is. He's basically saying, ah, yes, doubt is divine. 
No, it's not. It's in fact, James has something to say about uh, doubt. Hang on a second here. I'm find this real quick. Uh, doubting is, I think, what it says in the ESV in the book of James. Oh, you put a, take a little context off of this thing. Yeah, there it is. James chapter one. Um, okay, James chapter one. Let me let me read this. Um, James chapter one, and um, I will. Uh, the context I want for this is all James. One here we go. If anyone lacks, uh, James chapter one verse five. James, uh, brother of Jesus, writes: If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith or in trust, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Okay, so when when we ask for wisdom or we ask we ask God for things, we we need to ask trusting that God uh, will give us all good things that we need, and not doubt the goodness and graciousness of God to answer our prayers. So we need to have trust in, faith in God, in Christ, and not doubt God and Christ in these, in these matters. But we should doubt our own righteousness. We should doubt our own ability to please God through our good works uh, so that we're saved by them. Those are those, that's good doubt. So there's certain things we should doubt and certain things that we should not have doubts about. Okay? And I think that's what uh, James is getting here. Now, uh, this is all biblical work because, well, um, quite frankly, um, Pete Rollins doesn't do biblical work in his presentation. So let's continue. That uh, God becomes an atheist on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this isn't some sort of intellectual atheism. It's a deeply felt, what can be called existential atheism. God experiences the absence of God, this ripping apart of all identity, torn out of the political arena, the social arena, um, uh, the religious arena, abandoned by everybody. And there's something about... Where does the Bible talk about this existential atheism that Jesus experienced? It doesn't. When we doubt... See... You know, we think that when we doubt it, it can be a test. You know, I'm doubting because, you know, God is testing my faith. Or when we doubt, it's, um, it's something that we have to try to overcome. Or it's something that's just part of human nature. No, 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 it's human nature to believe. When you doubt, you actually stand in the very sight of Christ. You stand, it's something, whenever you do it, you look like Christ. Like when Mother Teresa, when, we, when she died and we learned that she doubted all her life, Instead of thinking that this was something horrible, this was profound, a profound experience. So long and short, yes, in Northern Ireland, we... Uh, so based upon what I've shown you from the scriptures and what, uh, and what Pete Rollins is teaching regarding faith and doubt, apparently when you doubt, you're like Christ, and, and it's a good thing like Mother Teresa experienced. Where does the Bible teach this? These are assertions that he's making. But this is really philosophy. This is not theology or doctrine that he's engaging in here. Belong to your identity so strongly, and what we were trying to do with the community I was part of is get people to doubt. Do you know what doubt is? As in my accent, the Americans never know what I'm saying when I say doubt. It's like what? 
Doubt? What's doubt? So uh, we would add a twang, doubt, doubt, doubt. Yes. Yeah, we can't say a rose in Northern Ireland. Um, how now, brown cow? That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, so what does that mean? Because like in our in our congregation here, if we were to sample people's political beliefs, economic, whatever, we would have this vast. We have a vast sort of differences. diversity. You have every sort of perspective under the sun. Yeah. So you've talked before about a church being this place where where you have an identity, but in some profound way you leave it at the door. Yeah. How, how do you explain that? And, and, and the reason why I'm so concerned about identity is because we have this view that we are the people we think we are. And that's completely mad. I, I think I am the person I think I am. I think I am my political views. I think I am my values. I think I am my religious ideas. Uh, I don't. I don't think I'm my political views. And I don't think I'm my religious views. That's silly. I, I don't think I'm an opinion. Uh, these are assertions that he's making, and I'm just sitting there going, I, that, that, really? That's some nice philosophy there being talked about at Mars Hill Bible Church. Where's God's Word again, and where's Christ? It's, it's like uh, in Facebook. We all know that Facebook is an idealized reflection of yourself. It's all the books that you want people to know you've read and not the ones you really have. You know, it's, not, it's all the films that kind of make you look good. It's all the photographs that, that put you in the right light and make you look a little bit kind of moody. People or, don't put bad photos of themselves on yes, Facebook. Yes, or de I detag. You have to detag when other people put photos up. So, it, it is, you detag. so the thing about Facebook is it's an idealized reflection of yourself. But, but here's the trick. Here's the trick. Facebook is not an idealized reflection of your conscious self. Your conscious self is an idealized reflection of who you really are. Uh, my what? So my conscious self is not my idealized Facebook's... What? <laughs> Again, this is philosophy. This isn't doctrine. This isn't theology. This is philosophy. And um, the total number of people who hold to this philosophy on planet Earth, one, it's Pete Rollins's philosophy. Now, he's saying some things that sound kind of reasonable and sort of kind of true, and some people listening to this are going to resonate with it because they're, they're guilty of doing some of the things he said, only putting up the you know good pictures of themselves on Facebook and and making it look like they're reading particular books that they haven't really read so that they can impress people. Th that's just hypocrisy. Th I mean, that's human sinful nature in play. And uh, somebody who is trying to put forward a face of being something that they're not, they've got some pretty serious sinful issues that need to be addressed. Uh, but I, you know, as far as delving into the uh, idealized self versus the conscious self and the uh, and the subconscious self and the unconscious self. I, I, um, again, um, can you give me a chapter or verse on any of this stuff, please? This is your Facebook profile. You dre you're dressing up in a certain way. You're presenting yourself in a certain way. This, you know what? I bet you're not really this nice clapping for me when I come in. You don't do that when I walk into a room normally. 
bet you, you know. You know, saying, oh, you're really nice. I bet you don't think that. If I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't talk to you. And you wouldn't listen to me if you knew everything there was to know about me. Right? Um, so what we do is I construct an identity, a false self, um, that I then present to people. But what I do is I fool myself. I think that I am the false identity I create. So, for example, recently I was with my friend's kids. And we were going up to the shop and, you know, the kid was running and the dad was running beside him and the kid kind of overtook him as if he was really fast, you know. And then we went back and they were playing chess and he let his kid win. Now, the truth is, and he was saying, oh, look how clever you are, look how fast you are. The kid's not clever or fast. The kid's rubbish. I could outrun that kid every single time. And honestly, honestly, now his dad's a bit big, like, so I'm not so sure about, of him, but I could, I could... Yeah, I hope he's not listening to this. His name's not Jimmy. Um, I, I, could, I could beat that kid on chest. The guy's rubbish. The kid's rubbish. I'd do three-move checkmate on him, right? Now, I'd be a good dad, wouldn't I? Um, but the point is, from, from when... If you were a dad, you'd beat your kid in chest. Yes, that's right. Every single time. You're rubbish. You know? You want an arm wrestle? I'd beat you every time. It's easy. It's easy. Now, but the, the kind of the point is, from when we're very young, we, we're given a false sense of who we are. But it's necessary. You've got to do that as part of growing up. But then we, we continue this on, and we have a false sense of who we are. And, and now, <clears throat> let me springboard off of uh, what Pete Rollins is saying here. I, I, I think you can make a biblical case that this is true, that we do get a false sense of who we are. But I don't think it's the way he's talking. Let me explain here. All of us, you know, and this is reinforced in our movies, reinforced in uh, in our education system, have this are told that we're all basically good people. That the only really bad people that exist out there are, are the people who go to jail, and uh, the people who uh, you know commit mass murder like Hitler and Stalin and, and Mao Zedong and things like that. Although if you're a socialist, you you think Stalin and Mao Zedong are you know those are great icons for you to emulate, uh, which is bizarre if you ask me. But anyway, um, so we are we are given this false security that we're basically good people, but we're not. Instead, Scripture paints a different picture of us. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so the thing that Scripture calls us to doubt is our righteousness, to doubt that we are basically good, and to, instead to see us, see ourselves in light of the way God sees us according to his law and according to his justice as one who is unrighteous, one who is dead in trespasses and sins, one who is a rebel against God, one who has sinned against God, one who deserves God's wrath and eternal punishment. So, but I don't think that's where he's going with this, but I, because I can't, I don't see in Scripture this, these biblical categories of false self, true self, conscious self, unconscious self, subconscious, whatever, and, you know. And actually, the first thing we have to do sometimes is to acknowledge who we really are, which is what you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first thing you have to do, you know, my name is Pete and I'm an alcoholic. You have to take the false story that you tell about yourself, which is, I could give up drinking any time I want. Oh, it's not really controlling me. You have to take that false narrative and you've got to fit it with the reality of your material existence. I agree with him here, <laughs> right? But the, the reality then, what is, what is reality? 
And that's dictated by God's word, that we're sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, and unrighteous, not good. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm a sinner. But see, Christianity isn't a recovery program as far as addiction recovery type program. Uh, Christianity is a, is a story of redemption. Yes. Right. I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking, this is why Columbo is the best TV program that was ever made. And you're right. You're right, it is. It, and, and why? Why is it the best TV program? Why is it? No. Um, it's because it's not like a usual detective series. By the way, I suppose if you're young, you might not know who Columbo, which is terrible. Um, but the point of a detective program is you don't know who did it or how they did it until the very end. And then you find out and you go, wow. And the worst thing would be for someone to, you know, not tape the end of the program. But in Colombo, you know exactly who did it and exactly how they did it from the very beginning. So you go, what's the pleasure of watching Colombo? Well, the pleasure of watching Columbo is in seeing how he takes the false story that the murderer tells about the situation and gets it to fit with the material reality, right? That's the pleasure. Spiritual disciplines, counseling, etc., are there to help us take the false story we tell ourselves about ourselves and get it to fit with the reality of who we are. Um, so, Spiritual disciplines? Okay. Doubting is not doubting who we are. This, this identity that we grasp is actually the very thing that masks who we really are. There's, if I can say one more thing. Um, there's, there's this story of a guy, and he is, he's got a wheelbarrow. And he is, it's a very far way to travel just to hear me, by the way. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's very good. Um, he's got a wheelbarrow. And, and every day he, he goes across this border, right? And the border guards learn that he's smuggling something. And they go, right, right, we're going to have to search him every time he goes across the border. So sure enough, every time he goes across, they, they take the, um, the cover off the wheelbarrow. It's just full of junk. And they go through it all, and they search him, and they can never find anything. Years later, one of the border patrol guys is in the pub, and he sees the guy, and he says, listen, mate, you know, you're, you're no longer going across the border. We knew you were smuggling something. What was it? What were you stealing? And of course, the guy says, wheelbarrows. I was stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> now, that's the point. You see, we think that the truth of who we are is inside. The truth of who you are is in your mind. What's, and that's why Bonhoeffer says, pastors have become the worst kind of gutter journalists. All they're interested in is your sex life, right? Now, because I, the truth of who you are is, is in, in your mind, in your fantasy life. And I've got to delve in there. What if, what if the truth of who you are is your material reality? You're, the truth of who you are is hidden in what you buy, in how, in how you regulate your resources, in how you regulate your activities, in how you regulate your time. What if the truth of who we are is in not what you believe, but in the totality of your existence? So this is the argument that I'm making, is that Christianity is a materialistic religion in that it transforms your material reality. If it does not transform your material reality, it is not true. I mean, otherwise we become like, there is a story about this minister and he's sitting reading one day, one Sunday morning, he's reading just after church. Okay, let me translate that into biblical speak, okay? I agree with him on one level, and that's this, is that 
Um, what, what does Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10 say? It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Or what does James say? Faith without works is dead. And he he likens it this way. He says, just as the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. So let me translate this into Belfastian uh, postmodern philosophical language here. Um, If your faith doesn't result in a change in your material reality, i.e., if your faith is without works, then it's not truly the Christian faith that you believe. Then the question immediately comes up, what is a good work? Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Work is unto the Lord. A good work is done in your vocation. A good work is being a good mommy, being a good daddy, cleaning snotty noses, picking up, cleaning up barf off the rug in the middle of the night, cleaning your home, taking out the garbage. You're saying, but well, even the unrighteous do that. That's right. They do all those things, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who have faith, then cleaning up vomit, changing diapers, being a good mommy, studying. Uh, you know, and working hard at work and doing all of those things are now a good work because you have faith in Christ, and those are the things that He's that God has called us to do. Okay, now at this point, let me tell you who I think Pete Rollins is kind of fishing for. He's fishing for those who have been locked up in a legalistic, moralistic, pietistic. Uh, brand of Christianity that doesn't teach you to confess your sins and be forgiven, but instead teaches you to hide your sinfulness and shove it and push it down so that there's a disconnect between what you believe and how you are. Okay? So in a sense, he much like the seeker-driven guys, He's now teaching, I can't say this is really preaching because this is philosophy here, he's teaching for repentance. But remember, Christ's admonition, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So in a sense, Pete Rollins is giving a very philosophical high, well, high, you know, high brow in the sense that this is more... Um, intellectually engaging than what you would normally get from a seeker-driven pastor, but it's the same result. It's this: He's giving you some kind of a, a philosophical presentation, an assertion, making these philosophical assertions that will lead to a change in your behavior, and the first step is for you to unmask your the false narrative that you've created about yourself, look at your material life and realize that there's a disconnect so that you can then amend that and change your behavior and and that 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 your true self and false that there is no false self but how you are and how you live connect correctly behavior modification if you would there's a knock on the door and 
the minister opens the door. There's a big guy there. He's crying. He's really upset. He's one of the parishioners. You know, he's sweating. He's obviously run all the way to the parish house. And he goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? The big guy says, this is terrible. Absolutely terrible. There's a family live just down the road. They're, they've, 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 he's lost his job. She doesn't have a job. They're looking after her sick mother. They've got four children. It's the middle of winter in Michigan. Middle of winter. By, by the way, I think you guys ham it up. When I come through the city, you've got all of these like bridges between your buildings. Is it really that cold? <laughs> like really? Just seems a bit weak to me. A bit of snow. So anyway, so it's the middle of winter. The middle of winter. Yeah. Um, and. Um, and, and the landlord's going to kick them out because they can't pay their rent. They're only one day late with their rent, 24 hours late, but the landlord's going to kick them out onto the street. We've got to do something. So the minister says, yeah, we'll get some money together. We'll, we'll give them money for the rent this month. And the guy goes, oh, that's brilliant. The minister turns around and says, by the way, how do you know the family? He says, oh, I'm the landlord. Right? Now, that's, that's the problem. The problem is... And, and, and what's, what, what's, what's interesting about that story is that it's not that, that the landlord, you know, there's a difference between wanting to make money and his care for, for the people. It's that he doesn't feel the problem. He doesn't feel the, the difference between his intellectual value system and his lived value system. He feels no distinction between the two. And that, that's what we're like, which is what irony is. Irony is doing an activity in the very moment that you disavow it. Like, uh, you know, sitting in a Starbucks having a coffee while talking about the evils of corporations. Or, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, driving a big SUV while chatting to your friend about environmental crisis. Or whatever it is, we engage in, in the ironic gesture all the time. Where we have this view, I have this view about who I am and how caring I am. I tick all of the right boxes on Facebook. You know, I mean, and you know what, those totalitarian governments quake every time I tick a box on Facebook. Um, I have... I have this set of values that I express and that I, but, but it doesn't necessarily reflect actually my material reality. And that's fundamentally what I want to do is get us to doubt our, our, this. You know, I can think of an example of this from the emergent realm. Um, something I've noticed about emergent authors like <clears throat> Brian McLaren and Doug Paget in particular is that these guys seem to rail against capitalism, but boy, they sure do seem to plug their books at every single turn. Yeah, I've actually seen Doug Paget in the com boxes at particular blogs when somebody has taken him to task and uh, challenged some of the things that he's said in his books. Doug Paget will turn around and and uh, give some quip and a retort, and then, oh, and by the way, here's a link to uh, where you can purchase my book. Yeah, yeah, railing against capitalism while uh, shilling your book seems to be uh, an example that I would bring up here. Image that we have of ourselves and actually begin to reflect on what am I really like in my actual material existence. One last thing. Oh, no, in 1932, there was an article in Homes and Gardens. Is there, does that still run in Homes and Gardens? You know? And it was about this politician, showed you around his home. Oh, he showed you his paintings he'd done, and they made jokes about his signature. They said he was a dry raconteur. He loved children, gave cupcakes to kids. He, ha he was a strict vegetarian, never touched a drop of alcohol. He loved animals. And you go around this whole house, and this, this big spread of the whole place, and of course, who is it? It's Hitler. 
Adolf Hitler. Now, here's the scary thing about the article. Hitler probably was a nice guy. Now, I always worry at this point if someone walks out and the last thing they hear is me saying, Hitler was a nice guy. <laughs> you know, like Pete the neo-Nazi. Okay, no, but if you were around at his house having a cup of coffee he, while he was playing Mozart on the piano, that might have been a nice occasion. The point is the truth of Hitler was not in his private behind-the-scenes existence. The truth of Hitler was in his material reality. What he did, what he produced, the horror that he did. The problem is everybody's nice when you get to know them one-to-one. Everybody's nice. Most people anyway, except for people who are psychotic. Yeah, let's see. what I'm not hearing here, though, is um, a, a very true reality regarding the actions that Hitler took. They have their genesis in the irrational philosophy that he embraced. Ideas have consequences. So the things that you believe internally lead to those actions. In fact, Jesus talks about the fact that out of the heart comes adultery, theft, murder, and and the like. It comes from within. So, yeah, I I'm, I appreciate the 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 problem that um, Pete Rollins is identifying here, and uh, and I think he's doing a fine and coherent and whimsical uh, job of uncovering and talking to a problem that uh, that uh, many people seem to suffer from. But again, identifying the problem and giving the right prescription for the illness, two different things. Because here's my question. Will Pete Rollins, at the end of us, at the end of this, point us to the fact that the true narrative regarding us is not that we're basically good people, but that we are sinful. That the disconnect between how we think we are and how we act and the facade that we build and this hypocrisy that we that all of us are guilty of living in is a result of the fact that we are by nature enemies of God and that we're not righteous and that we in need a Savior and that Christ and Him crucified for our sins. His propitiatory death on the cross is the solution to this sinful problem and the correct narrative that we need to adopt and the one that we need to defect from is that we're basically good people. If, if Pete Rollins gives us that, then I have to give him props and kudos. But if he doesn't give us that, then we've got a problem. Um, you know, are, are dead on when you get to meet them behind closed doors. The point is, we think that that's the truth of who we are, the person you have a drink with. No, the truth of who we are is in the totality of our being. <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, I, do I ask a question? Do I? Okay, this is what I. This is what I find so helpful about what you're saying. Essentially, we have a sort of the things that we agree to, and our religion sort of um, having lots of money doesn't really get happiness. So we have the sort of things that we all say, yes, yes. And as a good Christian, we're to love our neighbor and we're to understand that God looks at the inside, not the outside. But then there's the way that we act. Stop! 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 Whoa! Did you just hear Rob Bell say God looks at the inside, not the outside? Oh, man. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that. Uh, folks, If that's not good news. Because Jesus says out of the heart comes all wickedness and evilness. 
So God looking at the inside, not the outside, that's not good news. The gospel's not found inside of you. And you, it's not like God's going to look at, you know, take a peep inside of your heart and go, oh, look, uh, uh, finally, a righteous person. Oh, look, I just had to look inside of them. No, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. None is righteous. By the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Out of the heart comes the evilness. The problem is within you, within your na- your corrupted nature. So there was Rob Bell. Oh, well, as, as, as Christians, we need to remember, God looks inside the heart. Mm, yeah, that's not good news. Actually live. Yes. Which is, I'd like more money. And it does matter what people see. And so there is this sort of split between where we actually live from. Yes. And then the sort of all of the things that we all sit and agree with. Yes, this is true. This is right. This is. And what I've heard you say before is that what what the Christian faith does is you must have a disruption that like grabs you by the shoulders and says no. And it changes. So when you talk about Christianity as materiality, you are saying what the Christian faith does is it does not allow you to live split. You live one way, but but sort of affirm another way. Yeah. It disrupts that. It vi- it breaks that to pieces and says, yeah. no, you are going to live whole and honest and straightforward. Is that how? This, by the way, is the uh, hook by which they drag people from uh, legalism into uh, liberalism. That's the hook right there. Because... The type, the type of religion put forward by legalistic Christianity forces people to live in a split. It forces people to wear a mask that they know deep down inside is not true about themselves because it teaches them not to confess their sins and be forgiven, but to suppress and push down and hide their sinfulness and to not be honest with it. And that can only last for so long before you either despair, put a bullet in your mouth, or um, you know, you know, in your brain, um, or you uh, you end up being enticed into liberalism, emergent. This and that's what this is. That's the apologetic right there. That's the hook. You can't live forever with this disconnect, and so this sounds so so much better than the false facade of hypocrisy. But in reality. What this does is it basically makes you, it teaches you that the gospel is just being honest about yourself. You know, come as you are. You know, we we don't talk about sin because that creates hypocrisy. No, 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 no. We talk about sin and we talk, talk about Christ forgiving those sins. And we talk about how Scripture teaches that the one who says he is without sin makes God out to be a liar. And the truth is not in him. But the one who is... But the one who confesses his sin, the one who confesses that he is a sinner in need of a Savior, that God is faithful and just to forgive that sinner and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. So in a very real way, and you got to hear me here because I'm using modifiers, conservative legalism, conservative legalism is every bit as much as a, of a heresy as liberalism. And the reason why, and what's missing in both equations is the cross, okay? So what happens in conservative legalism, the cross gets obscured and taken away, and you are left with the law. 
and you have to hide and suppress your sins and you live as a hypocrite, putting on a mask as if you're pulling it off when you know you're not. In liberalism, again, the cross is missing. Christ and him crucified for our sins. That's not discussed. But instead, they say, listen, you don't have to live with a mask on. Come and be honest and just admit that you're, you know, that you're a sinful, broken person, and, uh, and now you can live without the disconnect, without the mask. The what's missing in both scenarios, Christ and him crucified for our sins. You would, um, yes, characterize it, 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 Yeah, it does that. It, 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 or, it's, it, or it's a lie. I mean, if, it doesn't, if, if that's not what's happening, then whatever you believe is um, simply an idea that helps, helps me sleep at night. You know, um, but the, pro- the problem is, yeah, it's like we can all agree that like having more money won't make us happy. We can all agree that having that bigger house won't satisfy this gap in our soul. We can all agree that having that new car won't somehow make us a better person or more attractive to the opposite sex, right? We all know that. So if you have a sermon that tells you that, it's not telling you anything you don't know, you know it. The point is, as soon as you walk away from the sermon, you act as if having more money will bring happiness. You act as if having that better house will be good for your soul. You act as if having a better car will do some great to, something great to you and make you more attractive to the opposite sex. The point is not what you believe. And, and how does that work? There's a story um, this philosopher Shizek tells, which is about a guy who goes to analysis. He goes to analysis for three years because he literally thinks he's seed, little pieces of seed on the ground. Now, after years of analysis, he goes, no, I'm a human being. I'm not seed. I'm a human being. And he's he's very happy and he goes away. Um, But then a week later, he comes back. Guy's sweating. He's crying. Obviously, he hasn't slept for days, hasn't eaten for days. And the analyst goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he says, it's terrible. My next door neighbors have got chickens. (laughs) That guy goes... So what? You know you're a human being, you know, don't you? And he goes, well, of course they do. I know that, but do the chickens know that? Right? Now, the point is, you don't have to convince me. You don't have to convince me that having a better car will, will not make me happy. I know that. You've got to convince the chickens. You've got to convince the advertisers. You've got to convince the magazines. You've got to convince the structure within which you participate. For me, in one sense, the church creates an alternative structure um, that, that, that breaks, that convinces the chickens. You know, that's the point. So that's where we live from. So we don't know our own beliefs because we give our, we outsource, is that what we say in America? We outsource our beliefs to someone else. Someone else believes on our behalf so that we don't have to. So that I can laugh about how stupid material consumerism is. I can laugh about it while fully participating in it. This is a shopping mall, isn't it? I can't this is shop. a shopping mall. Yes, good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the shops will be open soon. I reckon half the people are just here because they think the shops are going to open soon. <laughs> you know, raise your hands. No. Um, so yeah, that, that's the distinction that, I, that the Christianity breaks. And yet, and yet, how have we reduced Christianity to a set of beliefs? That's the scary thing. The actually existing church, so much of it seems to be you're a Christian because you affirm a certain set of beliefs and values. Membership is, is connected with ticking certain boxes. Okay, got to challenge him here. Okay. Paul the Apostle does not reduce, and this is, this, see, this is a straw man. Okay, those who hold to sound biblical doctrine have not reduced Christianity to a set of beliefs that you tick off. No, not at all. 
Scripture teaches what sound biblical doctrine is, and those who teach contrary it are teaching false doctrine. These are biblical categories. And the Apostle Paul, in the in the uh, in the uh, pastoral letters, makes it clear that we are to rebuke those who teach false doctrine, and to rebuke them sharply. Okay, and to refute those who are teaching things that ought not to be taught. And so the idea here is is that this is a first commandment issue regarding you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So that means we are not to allow idolatry to take place in the church, okay? Or for those for people to speak falsely about God because that wanders into the sin of idolatry. Keep in mind, I idolaters today for the most part don't make little statues and carve out little tiki gods that they worship. Instead, the gods that they fashion, they fashion with false words about God. And so this is an issue of idolatry. That, yeah, that's exactly what this is. And so the emergent folks, because they believe in post-modernity and a pluralism of truth, uh, they, they, they've constantly got to take swipes at those who are saying, wait a second, that's not what God's Word says, that's false doctrine. Oh, you're just basically making Christianity just about ticking off particular beliefs. No, that's not it at all. Okay, Christianity is about worshiping and serving and believing and trusting in the one true God. You cannot trust in the one true God if the God that you are trusting in, if the information about him is not correct and true. That's not if it if it runs contrary to what God has revealed about Himself. Okay, that's the issue. God will be turning his grave. Now, so a church, as you are saying, is this alternative alternative community. It is this other place that pokes holes in the lies of the world and says no. You know that's not true, and we are going to together, through spiritual disciplines and through our bonds together, learn to live a different way. We're going to use spiritual disciplines to live a different way. Ultimately, this is just the law again. Pleasing God through your works. Liberalism and legalistic conservative are two sides of the exact same coin. And they're both wrong. Yes, and that's an incredibly painful process. I mean, that is so painful as a process. That is, basically, that is participating in crucifixion. Because in cru- Doubt is participating in crucifixion, really. That's an unfounded assertion. That's philosophy at this point. And uh, I have where did where does the Bible say that? Where does where did any of the apostles teach this? The doubt is participation in the crucifixion. You want to talk about quote participation in the crucifixion? The closest thing that you can come to biblically is baptism. That in our baptisms we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Uh huh. You want to talk about participating in Christ's sufferings that comes about through persecution, as Paul says. But doubt is not a participation in crucifixion. The Bible doesn't teach any such nonsense. You see, you always have to, when people start making assertions, you got to compare it to the, uh, to the clear teachings of the Word of God and ask the question, where does the Bible teach that again? What text, uh, by the way, is uh, Pete Rollins preaching from? Oh, that's right, he's not. 
Um, which text did uh, Rob Bell introduce as the text by which they would be uh, teaching, you know, sound biblical doctrine from? Um, yeah, he he's not. So we're hearing religious talk that isn't grounded in God's Word and isn't pointing us to Christ crucified for our sins. I mentioned at the beginning where you're ripped away from all of the things that give you value, all of the things that define you. Because you know who your God is. Your God is, is what regulates your activities. Your God is what regulates your finances. Your God is what regulates your time. And when you participate in the cross, bam, that God dissipates. You're left utterly alone, forsaken. But then resurrection is where you find God in the midst in our participation with other people, in our commitment to material transformation. Does the Bible teach any of this theology and doctrine regarding the crucifixion and Christ's resurrection? He's using the terms crucifixion and resurrection, but like Mormons, the words have completely different meanings. Can these meanings be substantiated and defended from the clear teachings of the Word of God, from Christ's teaching and the Apostles' Doctrine? No, it can't. Where we embrace life, where we live fully and wholly. So, yeah. Now, I've noticed that when, when you write and talk, um, you don't generally say, my first point is A, <laughs> my second point is B, my third point is C, and they all start with the same letter. Yeah. Um, you, you move from story to story to parable. Of it, and, and you've written some parables. Why parables? Because obviously this is a central way that Jesus teaches. Yeah. Um, why parables? Well, see, I, I think parables sum up this kind of idea. The point of a parable is not to tell you something about the world. It's to transform how you interact with the world, right? And now, that's a great assertion. Can you back it up? I mean, is that what Jesus said his parables were for? A parable is a form of speaking which um, is, is designed to rupture, to shake up and to reconfigure your actual social existence. And it's to speak within. I mean, a parable is not what a minister puts at the end of a talk, a little nice story, we funny. Oh, I'll put a wee funny at the end, that'll make everybody laugh. Um, no, a parable is not, is not, like, here's what Kierkegaard says about love. He says, you can write about love, or you can write about suffering, or you can write as an act of love. You can act from a place of suffering. I says, and there's a very big difference. If you, if you speak as an act of love, remaining within love, exploring love from within, that can connect with other people. And parables are written from within. It's like, it's like um, a musician. A musician doesn't sing about, a good musician doesn't sing about suffering. A good musician suffers. Kierkegaard said, what is a poet? A poet is someone who sings, but, um, but, or who, who suffers, who cries out, but whose lips are so formed that when they scream, beautiful music is formed. And so when we say to the poet, sing to us again, what we're really saying is, may new disasters befall you. Um, now, kind of nice, but you know, so a, a musician doesn't, doesn't um, experience life deeply, doesn't love deeply or suffer deeply. That's, you know, a good person probably, but not a musician. Neither is a musician someone who's got technical proficiency. Um, 
A musician is when they bring those two things together. And, and, and a parable, in a sense, is the same. It's not designed to tell you about love. It's to, it comes from love and is designed to draw you into it. It comes from a place and tries to help you participate within. So parables are very powerful. If I actually tell you a story that sums this up, I think, is that um, there's this uh, story of two rabbis who are arguing over a passage in the Torah, and they've been arguing for 20 years over what it means. Like, God's got the patience of a saint, but God gets so annoyed listening that he decides, I'm going to go down and tell them what it means. So God parts the clouds, comes down to the two rabbis and says, I have listened to you guys arguing about this verse for 20 years. I'll tell you what it means. And in a rare moment of unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, what right have you to come down here and tell us what it means? You clear off back to heaven and let us argue about it. <laughs> now, the point kind of is that we want the God's eye view. What is God saying here? What's, what's the answer? And, and what these rabbis and it's in the Jewish tradition are saying is, no, that's not the point. The point is not you get the answer and you go home satisfied. Intellectually, I've got the answer. It's wrestling with the text, wrestling, fighting. That's why Israel means to fight. That's why the Irish are so close to God. You know, we love a good fight. The Irish and the Jewish, we love a good fight, right? So, um, you know, this is about wrestling and fighting. So there's another Jewish parable that says, this young guy comes to this old uh, and learned rabbi and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, I want to learn the wisdom of the Jewish people. And he goes, you're too young. Come back to me in 10 years. But the guy's arrogant. The guy says, I know symbolic logic. I know Aristotelian logic. I know modal logic. I, I'm ready. I'm ready for the logic of God. And the rabbi says, okay, I'll test you. He says, I'll ask you a question and see if you get it right. The guy goes, yeah. And he goes, okay, two guys go down a chimney. At the bottom of the chimney, one washes their face and one doesn't. You tell me, which one does? And... Uh, the guy goes, well, the guy, um, the guy with the soot in his face, he washes his face. And the rabbi says, no, no, don't be stupid. Go away, go away. Of course not. There's the guy without the soot. He sees his friend with soot on his face, thinks, therefore, I must have soot on my face, and goes and washes his face. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and then he says, oh, sorry, sorry. Well, test me again. Test me one more time. Come on, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. And he says, okay, a different question. Two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom one washes their face and one doesn't. Which one is it? And the guy goes, well, the guy without the suit in his face sees his friend and washes his face. And the rabbi says, stop trying to be clever. Stop trying to be smart. Of course not. You, the guy with the suit in his face, he feels it in his eyes and in his mouth and sees it on his hands. And he washes his face. Stop trying to be so smart. And then he says, okay, one more time, please, one more time. He says, okay, one more time. Two guys come down the chimney, one washes their face, one doesn't. Who, who, who is it? And he goes, oh, was it the first answer, um, but for different reasons? And the rabbi says, no, don't be so stupid. They both wash their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot in your face? Now go away. Right? <laughs> now, the point is, the guy's looking for the answer. What is the answer? What's the singular answer? And the rabbi is saying, if you want to start engaging in this life of faith, the very first thing you're going to have to give up is the idea that there's some answer you can grab. This is a journey in, into transformation, into a, a life of belonging and share belief and ritual. And okay, stop. Where in the scriptures did the apostles or Jesus teach that faith is a journey into transformation in community and all this kind of stuff? Uh, they don't. 
where did the apostles teach that Christianity is uh, all about finding answers? Now, oddly enough, you can make a very strong case. Jesus said, those who seek me, find me. And we can't seek unless Christ gives it to us to seek. But that's still not about answers. But Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus uses journey language regarding himself. He is the journey. He is the way. He is the path. He is the narrow path to life. In a sense, he is the answer. So, again, this is kind of a false... Yeah, I hate to say it this way, but this is really kind of a straw man that he's set up, kind of a taking a swipe at modernistic ways of thinking. And uh, you know, Jesus is actually the answer that none of us is looking for or even asking the question. Only through the telling of the story of man's sinfulness and rebellion against God does Jesus become the answer. Because we don't, by nature, even know what exactly the problem is. We can kind of hit, we kind of get it in the understanding that we go, you know, there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world. You know, sin, death. The, the, there's the, you know, there's you know, wars and plagues, and and we we all suffer from the symptoms of that. And many philosophers try to come up with the answer to you know understanding what's well, what's at the root of that, and how do we solve that? Well, the answer is a crucified and risen Lord, but it wasn't exactly, it's not the answer not any of us is looking for. The answer is not in making this world a better place and our lives being transformed in that sense. It's about, well, dying to self, living to Christ, and ultimately Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth, new heavens and a new earth. But see, oh man, I mean this this whole this these little parables he he tells. I feel like I'm you know I'm watching the old uh, television show Kung Fu. Uh, what was that name? David Carradine, and uh, he had you know he was some kind of a Buddhist uh, warrior monk kind of guy, and uh, he had a uh, um you know a, a mentor of his you know who was blind you know who you know and that's these stories remind me of that. Not anything that Jesus taught. I mean, just a comparison of the parables that uh, Pete Rollins is t- uh, telling us. Uh, you know, comparing him to Jesus. I mean, worlds apart, very different. Jesus tells stories about, you know, a widow who lost a coin and did everything to find it. He talks about the pearl of great price, a guy who finds treasure in a field that he doesn't even own, and he goes and you know, sells everything he has to buy that field. You know, yeah, I'm, these parables that he's telling just, um, they're not pointing me to Christ and him crucified for our sins. You you know what I mean? Transformation. And if you're looking for what's the right answer, you're kind of missing the point. Well said. Mm. Now, uh, You, will you share with us a parable you've written? Oh, um, <laughs> a parable I've written. You said there are basic elements to a parable. Yeah, well, maybe I have said that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'll tell you. Um, there's, a, there's a parable um, that I wrote about a businessman 
Uh, if I can remember this, you put me on the spot. Businessman who is uh, uh, traveling across the country, and uh, he meets this pastor. Now, this pastor discovered at a very early age that he had this amazing gift that if he prayed for somebody, they would miraculously lose their faith. Now, this made him very unpopular, obviously. Um, you don't have a pastor who prays for you and you lose your faith. So he, he, stopped, he would never pray, he would just preach. But he meets this businessman, and they're sitting and chatting, and the businessman is saying, well, you know, I see you're reading the Bible. You know, I'm a man of faith myself. He says, I'm in this, this, this very dark world, um, but you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't define who I am. It's, it's this, you know, I, I, I make all of this money and I, I have to do very aggressive deals and, um, sometimes, you know, people get hurt in the process, but that's not who I really am. I am a man of God. You know, I, I, I pray once a week in church. Um, I, I help out on a Thursday night with, with the old people. Um, so that's, that's my true identity. And so the pastor thinks for a moment and then says, well, would you mind if I prayed with you? And so the businessman, yeah, no, not at all, not at all. So the pastor prays for him. And as he's praying, the businessman eyes open and he goes, I've been so foolish. There is no God above to guide me. There's no spirit leading me. There's no book to tell me the answers. This is all ridiculous. And he left. But, but something strange happened. Now that he had to face up to who he was, Without this idea that he was really this man of God, he began to find what he did very distasteful. He couldn't live with himself anymore. He, um, he got out of the work he was involved in, started giving some of his expertise to some charitable groups, um, and began to, uh, to work in a different field entirely. Years later, he saw the pastor walking down the street, ran up to him, fell at his feet, started crying and saying, Thank you, thank you for helping me discover my faith. Faith in whom? He's, he didn't believe in God anymore, but he fed the poor. So thank you for helping me discover my faith. This isn't a faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for being hypocritical sinners. I mean, the guy he described, this businessman, is just is just awful. But thank you for helping me discover my faith that uh, that in which I completely doubt the existence of God. This isn't biblical Christianity, and it, it's almost like, well, to use his term, uh, he's like shooting uh, ducks and or fish in a barrel here, because who isn't guilty of uh, this level of hypocrisy? Who isn't guilty of it? Um, so, yeah, there's one. <laughs> so, so you have talked before about falling in love and about how a person is fine. You are okay. You are independent. You are complete. Then you meet somebody and you fall in love and now you cannot live without them. Yes. yes. And you've talked about how with God... There, there are, are similarities and differences. Will you talk about that? Yeah. Oh, and can I say one thing, by the way, about that parable? Very quickly, and then I'll answer that question. That parable, it's kind of like, the, the, the reason why I wrote that is because I was really interested in Batman. Because Batman um, dresses up and on a weekend goes out and beats up criminals, right? So that's his thing. Um, we all got a thing, and that's his thing. And, and then he gets up the next day and he works in Wayne Industries, puts on a suit, Monday to Friday in Wayne Industries. Now, what's the thing about Wayne Industries? Well... 
Wayne Industries makes so much money that he can, he can fund a high-tech military campaign against the criminals of Gotham City, and nobody even notices the money go. It's like, it's like they've got so much money that he can just siphon off all of this money for this high-tech military campaign. You've got to wonder, if he took that money and he set up like, you know, like education programs for young people in Gotham City, or if he, if he did like, you know, training, employment stuff, if he did, you know, all that, would he not be more effective? Because one guy beating up criminals on a Friday night doesn't get much done. It might make you feel better, but it doesn't get much done. And you know what? It's the, it's the very thing that he does that gets him the energy to get up the next day and go into work and work in wind industries. Now, the point is this. What if the very thing that we think we're doing, our prayer meetings, our Sunday services, we think that's a site of resistance. It's the thing that's changing things. What if that's the, the release valve? That's our Friday night beating up criminals. We do a Thursday night helping the poor. But we don't think about our nine to five, everything we're doing in the totality of our existence. And so it becomes a little release valve. The thing that we do, and we say, that's who I am. I am the person who sits here on a Sunday, Sunday morning, not I am who I am every day of the week. And so for, for Batman, he hasn't made the connection. So in one sense, what you have to do sometimes is strip away the false idea, like in that parable, this is who I am, so that the person comes face to face with who they really are, and then potentially change can happen. It's, and that's, what, that's, that's, that's the interesting thing about the Matrix films. What you find out in the first Matrix, you go, all oh, right, there's all the freedom fighters, there's Neo, he's out there, you know, doing his thing, right? And, and that's like Jesus, and there's Zion, it's like the kingdom of God. And then what do we find out in the second film? Well, we find out that actually the machines built Zion. We find out that the machines allow Neo to exist and the freedom fighters, they set the whole structure up. We find that the very site of resistance, the very thing we thought was fighting the system, is the very thing the system needs in order to perpetuate itself. In the second film, the machines go, we try to create a world without the resistance and it just collapsed. Because if you don't let, if you don't let people have an escape valve, then, the, then things blew up. Then real revolution and real change happens. Let people have a little bit of um, a pseudo-transgression, a little bit of a chance to, to feel that they're doing something. And the system of oppression runs really smooth. Really, really smooth. So we buy our fair trade coffee and we might think, ah, that's good. But maybe if we're just doing that, that's a little thing that we need to do so as we don't have to face up to that. That maybe we're in a profoundly unhappy relationship. Maybe we're in a job that's destroying us. Maybe we're, we're profoundly unhappy. But we don't face up to it. We don't because we're doing a couple of token gestures. So, yeah, and love. You're asking me about love. Yeah. I did. You did. I know. Uh, mm. You went from Kierkegaard to Batman, to Matrix in like five minutes. Yes. <laughs> that was very impressive. Columbo was in there earlier as well. Which, Columbo. Yeah, Columbo, yeah. Talk to us about love. Oh, yeah. What's that? Love. Talk to us. Yes. Um, okay, well, here's the problem. There's a wee story we tell back at home, Northern Ireland, about some guys who came over to America. And during the Troubles, we had this thing called the Troubles. I don't know if you heard of it. And uh, it was, the police force at the time was called the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And they got some funding from Europe to train with your FBI and CIA. And so they came over, 12 of their finest, and they were brought to some kind of, this is one of these New Year's team building things, you know. So they're brought to a forest, and the, the team builder says, you've got to go into a forest and retrieve a rabbit. And the guys go, okay. So it's the, um, it's the FBI first. They go in, 
They're in there for about 10 minutes. You hear a single shot ring through the air, and they come out with a rabbit bullet through the center of the head. You're going, well done, perfect job, well done. Then it's the CIA's turn, so you already notice they're there. You know, they slink into the forest, not a sound. They're in there for about half an hour, and then you hear a single twig snap, and they come out with a rabbit, dead but not a mark on its body. <laughs> they just find it like that. I go, well done, well done. Um, not inviting you round. And then, and then it was the RUC's turn. So the RUC get their flat jackets on, they get their battens out, their plastic bullet rounds, and they go in there. And they're in there for about three weeks. And finally, <laughs> finally they come out, and the biggest RUC man is dragging a bear behind him. And uh, the team builder guy goes, he says, well, you're in there for three weeks. And he says, and that's not even a rabbit, that's a bear. The biggest RUC man just smiles, looks the bear into the eyes. The bear starts to shake and goes, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> um, tells you something about the RUC <laughs> and some of their tactics. But also it tells you something about Christianity. That Christianity sometimes is, you know, you're so frightened that I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know, you're going you're gonna to go to hell or you know, your life lacks meaning or, you know, you're suffering and Jesus is the answer. And you, you embrace it, not because of some deep love. You, you embrace it because of fear, because of this kind of desire. But if you, if you seek God because you want eternal life, you're not seeking God, you're seeking eternal life. If you're seeking God because your life lacks meaning, you're, like, you're searching for meaning, not necessarily this encounter with the divine. And, and so it's like, it's like somebody who's just come out. But what about, I love Christ because he first loved me. I wasn't looking for him. He found me. And I heard the good news of what he's done for me. I didn't even realize the danger I was in. And look at the, the look at what Christ has done for me. Yeah, you know, again, it's like he's he's trying to deconstruct something that, in reality, I don't even think it's biblical Christianity. Come out of a relationship, you're looking for somebody else, anybody, and everybody keeps away from you because they know that you don't love them. You want them to fulfill some need in you, right? It's a very point whenever, and, a, and a, a bad friend will probably set you up with someone, but a good friend will say to you, calm yourself down. Get yourself sorted out. Take up the art that you used to do. Do, you know, start enjoying your life again. And it's the point whenever you don't need to meet somebody that you can actually encounter someone. Because you're not, when you encounter them, you're not looking for them because they fulfill some sort of need. You actually want them. Because love is like this. If I desire water, I desire it until I have it. And when I have it, I no longer desire it. Okay? But with people, you cannot desire or love someone you've never met. Because you've never met them. How can you love someone you've never met? Now, if you, you want a child, you can't love a child that hasn't been born. You might love a child for pathological reasons because of what they'll give to you. But you can't love the child until the child appears. So the romantic truth is this. I never needed you until I met you. But when I met you, I now realize I always needed you. The need is retroactively given. In love, you, you start to desire the person only after you've met them. So people are like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. If you ever, I don't know, a lot of you don't get the TARDIS. Americans don't have Doctor Who, do you? But some of you do. Okay. But the Doctor Who is about a doctor who travels through space and time in a telephone box. Weird. Uh, and, and, but the telephone box on the outside is very small, and yet on the inside goes on 
forever, infinite proportions, which is a beautiful image of human subjectivity. This small frame that you are opens up to an interior world of infinite proportions. So whenever you meet someone, they are a universe still to know. The coming of your beloved is the still to come, the not yet. So when you, when you meet the person that you love, desire is born and need is born. And for me, that's why I say to people, you know, if you need God, if people, someone comes to Icon and says, I need God, it's like, right, well, the last thing I'm going to do is talk to you about God. You know, last thing I'm going to do, that's awful. I'm going to get to the point where you don't need God at all. And then maybe, because you know what? And here's a, here's a parable about a woman who, whose child dies after only a few days of life. And she is so distraught, so distraught, that she wraps the child's body to her own with linen and goes in search of someone, of anyone who could resuscitate her child. She goes to witch doctors, faith healers and magicians. Nobody can help. But somebody says, high up in the mountains, away from everybody, there's supposedly this holy man who is so close to God, he can even raise the dead. Now, it might be a myth, but, you know, go ahead and have a look if you want. So she goes in search of this man, and sure enough, she finds this little hut and is beside this crystal clear stream. And she knocks on the door, and this old man comes out, and she says, I do not know if you're the man that I am looking for, but I need your help. And she begins to cry, and she tells her story about her dead child. After she's spoken, he says, I am indeed the man you're searching for, and I can help you. But first you must go down into the city, and you must look for a home that has not been struck with suffering. And in that home, bring back a handful of mustard seeds. And when I have that handful of mustard seeds, then, then I can help. So she goes down into the city, and she goes from house to house, and she can't find any home that has not been struck with suffering, death, and pain. But as she hears the story of other people's suffering, she gradually comes to terms with her own, until she's finally able to bury her child in the soil. Point is, we quite often want to, if someone's suffering, say, here's God. But you know what? Sometimes what the, the, faith, the answer of faith is, is I will suffer alongside you. We will together share our stories. We'll provide a space of healing. You know what? I'm not going to give God some answer because, you know, we hold on to God and then we don't actually go through the mourning process. We kind of hide ourselves from it. No, God, when we treat God like that, God is an idol, just an object, an idea that we have to hold on to in order to cope with life. No. Let us have a community where of broken people suffering together. And in that space, God is manifest in the relationship of healing itself. Sounds so nice. And there's some element of truth to some of the things that he's said. Although, has he pointed us to Scripture? Has he pointed us to Christ? I mean, the God we didn't even knew, know we need? whom we love because he first loved us and gave his life for us freely so that we might live. I mean, these are fun little entertaining stories. He's a great storyteller, a smart guy, intelligent, and, and this idea of being a community of broken people 
people suffering together and that's how healing can take place sounds so therapeutic. Sounds so much better than some of the vapid silliness that we hear in other places. And yet, what's missing? I know. Christ and him crucified for our sins. I'm hearing repentance. but I'm not hearing forgiveness. I'm hearing a change of behavior and correctly understanding that you're a broken person and putting away the facade and the hypocrisy. But I'm not hearing forgiveness and blood and God's wrath being propitiated and the debt that we owe to sin being canceled and being nailed to the cross. Like Paul told us in Colossians. Hmm. I think. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Sounds good to me. (laughs) Well, we should probably... Yeah, people are coming at 11, but they can wait. They can wait. Uh, well, um, I think I speak for many people. It's always like fresh water to listen to you. So thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's so you. life-giving. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. really great. Thank you. So the, apparently Rob Bell thinks that uh, hearing from Pete Rollins is so life-giving. How on earth can it be life-giving? There, Christ wasn't there. Christ wasn't proclaimed. The forgiveness of sins was not preached. I heard a bunch of stories. I heard about Batman. I heard Kierkegaard. I heard about Chesterton. I heard about The Matrix. I, I heard his parable about the schlocky businessman losing, you know, doubting God's existence and finding his faith in the meantime. I heard all of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard about Columbo, and yeah, but I didn't. I heard the apparently doubt his participation in the crucifixion, and I have no idea what resurrection is. But I didn't hear what the scriptures teach at all. And that's the thing about the emergence. I think they have some very valid, and in some senses, very well thought out critiques of some of the shallowness of American evangelicalism and legalistic Christianity. But their solution is has no substance to it at all. In fact, it's every bit as despair-causing as anything else. In fact, it's more like just an embracing of the despair and calling it love, calling it Christianity and calling it grace when it isn't. Wow. What do you think? Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. (sighs) Yeah, you know the shtick. I've said it a lot of times. But uh, the reality is we do need your financial support. And uh, we would appreciate it if you would partner with us. Of course, if you'd like to send in your contribution, you can do so by uh, sending it to uh, Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, I'm going to see Pete Rollins next week. I'm going to see Pete Rollins next week, and I'll probably end up having an opportunity to talk to him. Email me with your comments or your questions. 
and uh, maybe I can take a moment to uh, sit down and talk with him. Maybe I might even be able to get it on on uh, recorded. But I'd love to uh, uh, see which uh, what questions you might have for him. I'll be seeing him next week. So email those to uh, to me. You can uh, reach me at my email address. It's uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till, uh, well, till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>